Chapter One of the Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume One, by William Cowper Brand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by William Jones. Chapter One: Potiphar's Wife. The Story of Joseph Revisited. For more than six and thirty centuries, the brand of the courtesan has rested on the brow of Potiphar's wife. The religious world persists in regarding her as an abandoned woman who wickedly strove to lead an immaculate he-virgin astray. The crime of which she stands accused is so unspeakably awful that even after the lapse of ages we cannot refer to the miserable creature without a moan. Compared with her infamous conduct, old Lot's dalliance with his young daughters and David's ravishment of Uriah's wife appear but venial faults, or even shine as spotless virtues. The story of Mrs. Potiphar's unrequited passion may be strictly true, but if so, the world has changed most wondrously. It transcends the probable and rests upon such doubtful ex parte evidence that a modern court would give her a certificate of good character. It is not in accord with our criminal code to damn a woman on the unsupported deposition of a young dude whom she has had arrested for attempted ravishment. Had Joseph simply filed a general denial and proven previous good character, we might suspect the madame of malicious prosecution. But he doth protest too much. Mrs. Potiphar was doubtless a young and pretty woman. She was the wife of a wealthy and prominent official of Pharaoh's court, and those old fellows were a trifle exacting in their tastes. They sought out the handsomest women of the world to grace their homes, for sensuous love was then a supreme law of wedded life. Joseph was a young Hebrew slave belonging to Mrs. Potiphar's husband, who treated him with exceptional consideration because of his business ability. One day the lad found himself alone with the lady. The latter suddenly turned in a fire alarm, and Jacob's favorite son jogged along Josie in such hot haste that he left his garment behind. Mrs. Potiphar informed those who responded to her signal of distress that the slave had attempted a criminal assault. She is supposed to have repeated the story to her husband when he came home, and the chronicler adds in a tone of pained surprise that the old captain's anger was kindled. Neither Mrs. Potiphar's husband nor her dearest female friends appear to have doubted her version of the affair, which argues that, for a woman who moved in the highest social circles, she enjoyed a reasonably good reputation. But Joseph had a different tale to tell. He said that the poor lady became desperately enamored of his beauty, and day by day assailed his countenance, but that he was as deaf 
to her amorous entreaties as Adonis to the dear blandishments of Venus Pandemos. Finally, she became so importunate that he was compelled to seek safety in flight. He saved his virtue, but lost his vestments. It was a narrow escape, and the poor fellow must have been dreadfully frightened. Suppose that the she Turquin had accomplished her hellish design, and that her victim had died of shame. She would have changed the whole current of the world's history. Old Jacob and his other interesting, if less virtuous, sons would have starved to death, and there would have been neither miracles nor mosaic law, ten commandments, nor vicarious atonement. Talmage and other industrious exploiters of intellectual Tommy Trot, now ladling out saving grace for fat salaries, might be as unctuously mouthing for mumbo-jumbo, fanning the flies off some sacred bull, or bowing the knee to Baal. The Potiphar Joseph episode deserves the profoundest study. It was an awful crisis in the history of the human race. How thankful we, who live in these latter days, should be that the female rape-fiend has passed into the unreturning erstwhile with the horned unicorn and dreadful hippogriff, the minotaur, and other monsters that once affrighted the fearful souls of men. The sensuous sirens do not so assail us and rip our coattails off in a foul attempt to wreck our virtue and fill our lives with fierce regret. True, the Reverend Parkhurst doth protest that he was hard beset by beer and beauty unadorned, but he seems to have been seeking the loaded schooner and listening for the siren's dizzy song. Had Joseph lived in Texas, he could never have persuaded Judge Lynch that the lady and not he should be hanged. The youngster dreamed himself into slavery, and I opined that he dreamed himself into jail. With the internal evidence of the story for guide, I herewith present, on behalf of Mrs. Potiphar, a revised and reasonable version of the affair d'amour. Joseph was, the chronicler informs us, young, a goodly person, and well-favored. His Hebraic type of manly beauty and mercurial temperament must have contrasted strangely with Mrs. Potiphar's dark and stolid countrymen. Mistress and slave were much together, the master's duties requiring his presence near his prince. Time hung heavily on the lady's hands, and, as an ennui antidote, she embarked in a desperate flirtation with the handsome fellow, for Egypt's dark-eyed daughters dearly love to play fast and loose with the hearts of men. Of course it was very wrong, but youth and beauty will not be strictly bound. The opportunity seemed made for mischief, and Mrs. Potiphar cared little for her lord. A grisly old warrior who treated her as a pretty toy his wealth had purchased, to be petted or put aside at pleasure. A neglected wife, whose terms attract the admiring eyes of men, may not depart one step from the straight and narrow path. 
but her husband's honor stands ever within the pale of danger. Let that husband, whose courtship ceased at Hyman's shrine, who is a gallant abroad and a bore at home, keep watch and ward, for homage is sweet even to wedded women. While Potiphar played the petty tyrant and exacted of his wife a blind obedience, Joseph sang to her songs she loved, plaintive tales of tender passion, of enchanted monarchs and maids of matchless beauty. He culled the fairest flowers from the great garden and wove them into garlands to deck her hair, dark as that lingering night which Moses laid upon the valley of the Nile. He gave her a thousand little attentions so grateful to womankind, and worshipped her, not presumptuously, but with the sacred awe of a simple desert child turning his face to greet the rising sun. They were of the same age, that age when the heart beats in passionate rebellion against cold precepts, the blood riots in the veins like molten rubies, and all life seems made for love, for daydreams golden as the dawn, for sighs and sweet companionship. What wonder that she sometimes left her lord to his heavy slumbers and crept into the cool gardens with the handsome Hebrew boy, that they walked, hand clasped in hand, beneath the tall palms that nodded knowingly, and whispered sweet nothings while the mellow moonlight quivered on the Nile, and sad Philomela poured forth her plaintive song like a flood of lover's tears. All day long they were alone together, those children of the world's youth, when life was strong and moral law was weak, when the summer sun rode high in heaven and sent his burnished shafts straight down into the white streets and swooning gardens when the great house was closed to shut out the blinding glare and in the court cool fountains cast their grateful spray what wonder that she bade him sit at her feet and sing the love songs of his native land wild prototypes of those which solomon poured from the depths of his sensuous soul to his sweet rose of sharon behold thou art fair my love behold thou art fair Thou hast dove's eyes, thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, thy breast like young rose that feed among the lilies. Set me as a seal upon thy heart, and seal upon thy arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. The song dies out, and the languorous stillness is broken only by the splashing of the fountains in the great marble basins and the downy hum of a bee among the blossoms the lad's head has sunk down upon the lady's knee and she is watching the tears trembling on his drooping lashes and wondering with a little thrill of pain if he has a sweetheart in his own land of whom he is so sadly dreaming she thanks him for the song in a low voice, and sweet as the musical ripple of that sacred river among the reeds. She dazzles him with her great Egyptian eyes, 
those ebon orbs in which ever lurks the sensuous splendor of a summer night's high moon her hand strays carelessly among his curls as she punctuates with sighs and tears his oft-told tale of unkind brethren the gloomy cave the coat of many colors dipped in blood of the slaughtered kid the cruel goad of godless medianite driving him on and on through burning sands and neath the blazing sun far from his tearful mother and mourning sire how cruel the fates to consign to slavery one born to be a king his master is a hard man and covetous but her pleadings shall yet purchase sweet liberty for old jacob's son that he may fulfil the high dreams of which he has told her may answer the midnight messages of israel's god and triumph over those wicked brethren perhaps who knows in his own land he will become a mighty prince and treat with proud pharaoh on equal terms will he remember her his only friend in a land of foes will he think of her when ammon is overthrown and proud moab pays his tribute ah no when a crown of jewels blazes on his brow and the sackcloth of the slave is exchanged for imperial purple he'll think no more of the lonely little woman by the nilus bank who prays that isis will magnify his power that osiris will shield him when the hebrew sword rings on the hivite spear he will take to wife some fair cousin of esau's house a maid more beauteous far than those who drink the sweet waters of the south old abraham's daughters are fair and have dove's eyes their lips are as threads of scarlet and their breasts like young rose that feed among the lilies does not the song say so but those of egypt oh unhappy egypt love is strong as death jealousy is cruel as the grave she bends low and whispers the line upon his lips while her fragrant breath beating upon his cheek sinks into his blood like the jasmine's perfume more dangerous to the soul than aphrodite's kisses or anacreon's drunken song by such arts did cleopatra win the master spirit of the world and make the mailed warrior her doting slave indifferent alike to honour and to duty content but to live in love what wonder that the callow shepherd lad unskilled in woman's wile believed that his mistress loved him that his heart went out to the handsome coquette in wild passionate throb in which all heaven's angels sang and hell's demons shrieked a beautiful woman not the beauty of greece on which we gaze as upon some wondrous flower wafted from elysian fields and too ethereal for this gross world nor that of rome with palaces snow-clad bosom and retrospective eye but the sensuous beauty of the far south that cast a circean spell upon the souls of men 
Her eyes are not dove's eyes that softly shine along the path to heaven, but wandering fires that light the way to hell. Her lips are not a thread of scarlet, chaste as childhood and dewy as the dawn, but the deep, sullen red of a city swept with flames. Her breasts are not like young roses that feed among the lilies, but ivory hemispheres threaded with purple fire and tinged with sunset's tawny gold. Reverently as though touching divinity's robe, Joseph caresses the wanton curls that stream like an inky storm cloud over the shapely shoulders. He puts the little hands, heavy with costly gems, back from the tearful face and holds them with a grasp so fierce that the massy rings of beaten gold bruise the tender flesh. Mrs. Potiphar starts up, alarmed by his unwanted boldness. She reads his face with a swift glance that tells her he is no longer a lad, a pretty boy to be trifled with, for the amusement of an idle hour. The cupid's bow had faded forever from his lip, and childhood's innocent from his eye. He has crossed life's Rubicon, and has passed at one stride from the veil of youth with its trifles and its idle tears, its ignorance of sex and stainless love, to manhood's rugged mountains, where blazes ambition's baleful star, and the fires of passion ever beat, fiercer than those that sweep Gehenna's sulphurous hills. Even while her cheek crimsons with anger, and her heart flutters with fear, the woman glories in Joseph's guilty love, sweet incense to her vanity, evidence of her peerless beauty's infernal power. She retreats a step as from the brink of an abyss, but farther she cannot fly, for there is a charm in her companion's voice, potent as an old Merlin's mystic chant, tones low and sweet as music in dreams by maids who sleep in Tian's bosom, yet wilder, fiercer than trumpets blown for war. As a sailor drawn to his doom by siren song, or a bird spellbound by some noxious serpent, she advances fearfully and slow until she is swept to his strong arms and held quivering there like a splotch of foam in a swift eddy of the upper Nile. The room swims before her eyes and fills with mocking demons that welcome her to the realm of darkness. The fountain's ripple sounds like roaring thunder in which she reads the angry warning of Egypt's gods while beneath the accursed magic of the kisses that burn upon her lips, her blood becomes boiling wine and rushes hissing through a heart of ice. The mocking demons turn to angels with Joseph's handsome face and crown her with fragrant flowers. The threatening thunders to music sweet as Memnon's matin hymn or accepted lover's sighs heard neath the harvest moon. She is afloat upon a sapphire sea beneath a sunset sky, the west wind's musky wing wafting her, whither she neither knows nor cares.
but the angels and the fragrant flowers the music sweet as lovers sighs and the sapphire sea the sunset sky and zephyrus musky wing are dreams the blistered lips and poor bruised bosom the womanly pride humbled in the dust and wifely honor wounded unto death these alone are real with an involuntary cry of rage and shame a cry that is half prayer and half a curse a cry that rings and reverberates through the great sleepy house like a maniac's shriek heard at midnight among the tomb she flings herself sobbing and moaning upon the marble floor the drowsy slave starts up as from a dream quivering in every limb like a coward looking upon his death he tries to raise the grovelling victim of his unbridled lust but she beats him back he pleads for mercy but she calls him ungrateful slave base hebrew dog and prays all egypt's gods to curse her conqueror there is a rush of feet along the hall there is a clash of weapons in the court and here and there and everywhere cheerful maids are calling to their mistress the sweet one and beautiful dear daughter of the dawn lily of the nile while brawny eunuchs bare-limbed and black as hell's own brood are vowing dire vengeance even upon the king himself if he has dared to harm her the culprit glances with haggard face and wildly pleading eyes at the woman once so imperial in her pride now cowering a thing accursed clothed only with her shame and flood of ebon hair the great sun that hung in mid-heaven like a disk of burnished brass when she first forgot her duty descends like a monstrous wheel of blood upon the western desert and through the casement pours a ruddy glow over the prostrate figure a marble venus blushing rosy red joseph cast his coarse garment over his companion as one might clothe the beauteous dead and turns away the figure of despair the avatar of guilty fear love is a dangerous game to play and oft begun in wanton mischief ends in woeful madness in the first blush of shame and rage mrs potiphar was eager to punish the slave's presumption even though herself o'erwhelmed in his ruin but hate though fierce is a fickle flame in the female heart and seldom survives a single flood of tears already joseph's handsome face is haunting her already she is dreaming o'er the happy hours by neelis bank where first he praised her wondrous beauty beneath the nodding palms when the fireflies blazed and the bulbul poured its song the love has lain latent within her bosom or burned with friendship's unconsuming flame awakes like smouldering embers fanned by desert winds and fed with camphor wood enveloping all her world she longs to leave the loveless life with her sullen lord to cast from her as things accursed the gaudy robes and glittering gems to fly with the shepherd lad to the deep cool forest of the far east and dream her life away in some black tent or vine-embowered cot 
to take his hand in hers and wander on to the world's extreme verge listening to the music of his voice the great house once her pride has become a gruesome prison the jailer a grisly gorgon who conjured her with the baleful gleam of gold to cast her beauty on mammon's brutish shrine she hardens her heart against him and pities herself as wives are wont to do who have dragged the dear honour of their husbands in the dust she persuades herself that love has cast radiant glory about her guilt and sanctified her shame o woman what a paradox thou art when the descending sun touched the horizon's rim mrs potiphar could have plunged a poisoned dagger through the heart of her paramour and mocked his dying moan the great globe of fire has not bid the world good night yet she is weeping because of the bitter words with which she drove him forth love is strong as death she repeats the line again and again oh my israel is the grave the limit of thy love wert thou dead fair boy egypt would enclose thy sacred ashes in a golden urn and wear it ever between her breasts would make for thee a living sepulchre and thou shouldst sleep in the veil of love between the rosy mountains of desire vert thou dead the slaves they will tell their master the wild words she spoke against her love against his life she must seal their lips must command their silence too late even as she lays her hand on the silver bell the heavy tread of her husband's brass-shod feet is heard in the long hall ringing upon the bare stone floor in rapid nervous rhythm so different from the usual majestic tread of pharaoh's chief slaughterman the slaves have already spoken a faintness as of death falls upon her but she is a true daughter of false egypt and a wiser than potiphar would find in her face no shadow of the fear that lies heavy on her heart the game is called and she must play not for name and fame but for love and life her husband confronts her ferocity incarnate the great cord-like veins of the broad low brow massive neck knotted and black his eyes blazing like the orbs of an angry lion seen by the flickering light of a shepherd's fire he essays to speak but his tongue is thick his lips parched as one stricken with the plague and instead of words there comes through his set teeth a hoarse hissing sound as of the great rock serpent in its wrath his glance falls upon joseph's garment the gleaming sword leaps from its sheath and he turns to seek the slave she lays her hand lightly upon his arm great egypt's shield a pillar of living brass she nestles in the grisly beard like some bright flower in a weird forest she kisses the bronze cheek as judas did that of our dear lord and soothes him with pretty truths 
that are wholly lies. Joseph is a good boy, but sometimes overbold. Poor child! Perhaps her beauty charmed away his senses and made him forget his duty. She bade him sing to beguile a tedious hour, and he sang of love and looked at her with such a world of worship in his eyes that she grew angry and upbraided him. Let it pass, for by the mystic mark of Apis she frightened the boy out of his foolish fever. She laughs gleefully, and the gruff old soldier suffers her to take his sword, growling meanwhile that he likes not these alarms, that she has marshaled Egypt's powers to battle with a mirage. The game is won, but guilt will never rest content, and oft reveals itself by much concealment. It is passing strange, she tells him tearfully, that every male who looks upon her whether grey-headed, grandsire, or beardless boy, seems smitten with love's madness. She knows not why tis so. If there is in her conduct aught to challenge controversy, she prays that he will tell her. The old captain's brow again grows black. He leads her where the fading light falls upon her face and looking down into her eyes as though searching out the secrets of her soul, bids her mark well his words. The wife who bears herself becomingly never hears the tempter's tone or knows aught of any love but that of her rightful lord. Pure womanhood is a wondrous shield more potent far than swords. If she has been approached by lawless libertine, he bids her, for the honor of his house, to set a seal upon her lips, instead of bruiting her shame abroad, as women are wont to do, whose vanity outruns their judgment. Potiphar determines to watch his wife. It had never occurred to him that she could possibly go astray, but he has learned from her own confession that she is a flirt, and he knows full well that a married coquette is half a courtesan. Suspecting that Joseph's offense is graver than his wife set forth, he casts him into prison. The inexperienced youth, believing the full extent of his guilt has been blazoned to the world, and frightened beyond his wits by armed men and clank of chains, protests with tears and sighs that he is more sinned against than sinning. It is the old story of Adam improved upon. He not only damns the woman, but denies the apple. Joseph's posterity, hating Egypt with their whole heart and intent on glorifying Israel and Israel's God, became the only historians of this original scandal in high life, and thus was a youth, probably neither better nor worse than his brethren, raised to the dignity of a demigod, while a vain young wife is condemned through all the ages to wear a wanton's name. The story probably contains a moral which wives may look for, if they will, of course, this account of Mrs. Potiphar's seduction is a fancy sketch, 
but it is a true pen picture of what too often happens in this fair land of ours and may be perused with profit by many a benedict the number of unfaithful wives whose sin becomes the public shame is simply appalling yet no criminal was ever so cautious so adept in the heart of concealment as the woman who values her reputation above her honor there is no secret a man will guard with such vigilance as his amours no co-partner in iniquity that he will shield with such fidelity as a paramour the bandit may turn state's evidence and the assassin confess beneath the noose but the roue will die protesting that his mistress is pure as the driven snow and yet woman is by nature as true to her rightful lord as the needle to magnetic north as faithful to her marriage vows as the stars to their appointed courses when a wife goes astray the chances are as one to infinity that the misstep is her husband's fault love is the very life of woman she can no more exist without it than the vine can climb heavenward without support that it can blossom and bear fruit without the warm kiss of the summer's sun woman's life is a flame that must find an altar upon which to blaze a god to glorify but that sacred fire will not for ever burn mid fields of snow nor send up incense sweet to an unresponsive idol even though it bears the name of husband the man who courts the wife as assiduously as he did his sweetheart makes the same sacrifice to serve her shows the same appreciation of her efforts to please him need never fear a rival he is lord paramount of her heart and forsaking all others she will cleave unto him through good and through evil through weal and through woe through life unto death but the man who imagines his duty done when he provides food shelter and the fine raiment for the woman he has won who treats her as if she were a slave who should feel honored in serving him who vents upon her hapless head the ill nature he would like to pour into the faces of his fellow-men but dares not were wise to heed the advice which iago gave to the moor woman is more subtle than her ancient enemy the serpent and woe to the man who attempts to tread her beneath his feet true it is that all women who find the hymeneal rites but an unreadied of that enchanted spell in which they worshipped devils as demigods between whose eager lips the gold apples of hesperides prove but dead sea fruit for whom the promised elysium looms but a parched sahara do not seek in forbidden fields to feed their famished hearts but it is well for the peace of mind of many a husband who neither dotes nor doubts that black dishonor oft goes hand in hand 
with blissful ignorance. The philosophic world rejects the story of Joseph, having long ago learned that he Dian's live only in childish legend and delicrucian poetry. As an ideal, it reverses the natural relation of the sexes. As an example, it is worse than worthless, for instead of inspiring emulations, the young Hebrew's heroic countenance only provokes contempt. Men worship at the shrine of Solomon's wisdom, of Moses' perseverance, of David's dauntless courage, but crown the altar of Joseph with asses' ears. Such foolish Munchausenisms give to young girls a false idea of the opposite sex, relax their vigilance, and imperil their virtue. From such ridiculous romances, solemnly approved by an owl-like priesthood, sprung that false code, so insulting to womankind, that a wife's honor is not committed to her own keeping, but to the tender care of every man with whom she comes in contact. When a wife goes wrong, a hypocritical world rises in well-simulated wrath, which is too often envy, and hurls its anathema, ranatha, at the head of the designing villain, as though his companion in crime were born without brains and reared without instruction. The injured husband, who probably drove his wife to the devil by studied neglect that starved her heart and wounded her vanity, is regarded with contempt if he does not make a killing for a crime against the social code which he would himself commit. I paint man as I find him not as I would have him. I did not create him, or did his architect ask my advice. Hence it is no fault of mine that his virtues frail as ocean foam, not mine the blame that while half a god he's all a beast. Mentally and sexually man is a polygamist, and whatever its moral value may be, monogamy does violence to the law of his being. It is a barrier against which he ever beats like some wild beast of prey against restraining bars. Give him Psyche to wife and Sappho for mistress, and he were not content. Would swim a river to make mad love to some freckled maid. It is likely that Leander had at home a wife he dearly loved when he lost his life trying to reach fair hero's bower. That the Lord expects little, even of the best of men, when subjected to beauty's blandishments, is proven by his partiality to various princes and patriarchs, who, in matters of gallantry, may be regarded as pace-setters. I am not the apologist of the godless rake, the defender of the roué, but I have small patience with those mawkish purists who persist in measuring men and women by the same standard of morals. We might as well apply the same code to the fairest melee who runs amuck and to McAllister's fashionable pismires. We might as wisely bring to the same judgment bar Bingle's royal beast, crazed with lust for blood, 
and jacques wounded deer weeping in the purling brook each sex and genus must be considered by itself for each possesses its peculiar virtues and inherent vices in all nature god intended the male to seek the female to be sought these he drives with passion's fiery scourge those he gently leads by maternal longings and thus is the law of life fulfilled the living tide runs ever on from age to age while divine modesty preserves her name and habitation in the earth a man's crown of glory is his courage a woman's her chastity while these remain the incense rises ever from earth's altar to heaven's eternal throne but it matters not how pure the man if he be a cringing coward how brave the woman if she be a brazen bawd lucretia as caesar were infamous and caesar as lucretia were a howling farce end of chapter one potiphar's wife story of joseph revisited